the Forgecast. My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. The Forgecast is coming at you thanks to Rob at Weber Abrasives, Australia's number one stockist for all of the best abrasives on the market. Get in touch today at abrasives.on.net and stay tuned for his new online store coming soon. So what have you been up to this week, Alex? Most of my week has been spent working on a new Damascus slip joint with buckeye mm. bill scales and brass hardware. It's uh, kicking it's my looking, ass. It's looking fantastic, though. Yeah, thanks. It's um, it's it's funny. Like I did weeks and weeks of study on slip joint folders before, and and prototyping and doing like mock-ups and little mini models out of all sorts of different materials and things, trying to get the you know the science of it right before making my first one which was the one for my grandfather mm-hmm. and during the making of that one i learned more than i had done in the study the six <laughs> weeks of study beforehand um and i'm applying everything that i learned totally onto this new one and i'm still learning things it is like serious amounts of new little nuances tiny tiny nuances um, and I actually put a post up on my Instagram today that actually showed how a, um, a sliver of brass, the size of a human hair, uh, actually impeded the entire slip joint mechanism. And I thought that I had um, removed too much material at one point and actually gave myself a loose fit. Mm. But it was actually a, a, a piece that small. And the, the tolerances that I'm now dealing with are the tolerances of a human hair. Yeah. Um, just to get thing it's enough to make it stop working um it was an overhang because i'd been working down the edges of my scales and the brass liners had actually brass has a tendency Mm -hmm. to peel peel off like little hairs and fibers sometimes yeah and that was all it was so a little bit of a with some 800 grit and worked with charm so yeah it's amazing the 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 microscopic world you move into when you start doing sort of higher detail folders um my little chonk neck knives have been disappearing um they've they've been phenomenally popular which has really inspired me to do more production line knives Um, Mm -hmm. i've been really glad with how they're turning out too they're they're quite quite attractive little things um and despite their small size seem to be quite practical yeah, they look um, great. I, I, you know, you've been really smashing it out um, in trying, recent trying weeks. Trying to. It's a shame, man. <laughs> <laughs> I learned from the best, boy. <laughs> um, I finally got my new post box forge up to spec. I haven't really shown it off much because it's been just eat through gas. Like 25 PSI to just do general forging um, was not good enough for me. Um, so... I've been doing yeah, a lot yeah, of. I thought ref- I run mine at average. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I'm too cheap. So yeah, well, my uh, gas bottle forge actually um, gets to forge welding temperatures at 10 psi, and mm. it's not forced air or anything. It's just that I've got insane refractory going on in there. Um, but it's that's not the large pu- burner. That's that- the large burner too, isn't it? No, no, no. That's that's the Gameco small burner. Oh wow! 
It's just that it's got about three inches of hard castable on top of two inches of KO wall. Yeah, right. <laughs> the internal volume is tiny, uh, but that's um, it. It's not a pass-through forge, so I needed a pass-through forge, which is why I did the post box. Mm. Um, post box is also a small burner, um, and five to ten psi gets me really good forging temps now, uh, depending on the size of the piece of steel that's going in there. Mm-hmm. Um, because you lose a lot of heat because hot air rises and you've got two exits just that the the heat just wants to flow out of so it was always going to run at a higher psi than my gas bottle forge yeah um but 10 psi is a good good solid all round of forging temperature and i'm happy with that that's that's a that that'd make a nine liter gas bottle last a long time so um I haven't tried forge welding in it yet. Um, I don't. It's not really designed for forge welding um, the way <laughs> I've got it set up. So um, I'll keep the other one for that. Um, so now I've just got two gas forges, um, and so I'm just glad to have it. Really, having a pass through forge just makes a big difference. It's funny because you and I run our forge like we run similar forges, but for exactly the opposite region. Yeah. Like I, I don't use my uh, big gas bottle forge for anything that involves flux, whereas all of my forge welding gets done in my post box. Well, the funny thing is, I've actually got um, uh, one of my students, Peter, gave me a big old lump of of fire brick uh, that you can like cut down into smaller pieces. So mm-hmm. I cut little uh, little plugs that can go in one or both doors. And the front door plug actually has like a scoop taken out of the top so that heat can escape. And when I'm heating it up um, and getting the refractory hot, I actually put both plugs in. Um, right. and just sort of let it come up to temperature where the heat can only escape at a smaller rate. Um, mm-hmm. And that gets it quite hot. But if I only take the front plug out, it's only got this little three inch by three inch door. And I yeah. reckon I could probably actually forge weld in that. It gets toasty hot. But as soon as I remove the other plug and i've got two doors open the heat just bleeds out of it you gotta crank it yeah yeah and i'd have to bring it up to like 25 30 psi it probably could forge weld in it but we'll see well i mean i forge i forge welded mine all the time so yeah it's definitely possible oh yeah but uh we'll see how it goes um i have got a lot of um private messages from people i think it's like seven messages now thanking me for introducing them to the cat empire which has been really nice <laughs> yep it's just nice to spread the love of my, one of my favorite bands and even um as far as germany um a person has gone to multiple of their concerts in germany mm. didn't really think yeah, that I saw, they I saw that email yeah yeah that was that was pretty cool so uh that's uh, really nice because uh, they're a band that's very very close to my heart so to actually have people reach out and thank me for that has been really cool um and my song of the week this week is actually um a very old one but a really really good song it's the song lola by the kinks right have you ever heard it i can't think of it off the top of my head no it's a really, really good song that was written, I think it was from the 60s, early 60s. Um, yeah. But it's about a guy that's really, really shy and nervous who goes out clubbing and he um, starts dancing with this girl that's really into him and all that sort of thing. And then he finds out that it's actually a, a dude looks like a lady. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, and he's conflicted because he's already started feeling all these emotions for <laughs> Um, but the lyrics are actually really funny um and i imagine at the time it was a very risque song 
But mm. the chorus is just one that would just stick in your head for days. It's a really, really good song. Uh, I love most of what the Kinks do. Um, special shout out to Sunday afternoon. But mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I could list a lot of them. But Lola's my song of the week. I'll stick with Lola. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> what about you, Sam? What have you been up to? Oh man, dying in the heat. Uh, mm. <laughs> other, been, yeah, other other than melting. <laughs> yeah, it's been ridiculous, man. Like uh, average, you know, in the mid thirties, you know, high high mid to high thirties, you know, up to a hundred Fahrenheit for our American friends and above. Um, yeah, working in the forge. I've I've been working on a, an order for uh, a good friend of ours, Stefan. Uh, mm-hmm. making him making him a set of hammer eye drifts which are uh, going to be the last drifts that I make on commission because no no more <laughs> it's, it's a lot of forging and like um, as much as I enjoy it like forging it's not a very exciting forging you, you're basically just drawing a big bar into a slightly more tapered bar mm-hmm. um, so and I, I think I couldn't really compete with uh, the cast the the current production levels of like drifts and stuff you can buy them from blacksmith depot and and um like gamico and stuff like that normally sell uh mass-produced hammer eye drifts for very little so um you know i, I think I, I'm, I'm good in that department because i could never charge enough to warrant the amount of work that i put in yeah that's a little one-man forge i'm glad i got in when i could yeah <laughs> that's it but uh yeah other than that i've been um been watching you with great interest uh mm. mainly because you've been absolutely shaming me in the knife making you know <laughs> in the knife making area i i have i realized the other day that i hadn't really made a knife except for that giant chopper thing which was kind of you know not a knife uh <laughs> you know i haven't made a knife in months uh and i have uh over 30 blades that have are in various states of finish um, you know, like some of them are just forged, some of them are forged in ground, some of them are heat treated, some of them are all the way up to hand sanded, um, that I haven't finished yet. They've just been sitting there waiting. Uh, and so I've been slowly working through the backlog of those, um, and hopefully we'll get them up for a sale soon. Cause I only just realized the other day, now that we're in 2021, that, uh, Perth Knife Show is only a couple months away. Um, I think it's in July or June. I can't remember. But um, I'm going to yeah, need to stop months. for that. Yeah, two months. I guess a couple, <laughs> few, several, whatever. The, the thing is, is that I remember what it was like trying to rush to build enough knives to fill a table in, in a month. I remember that. that. sucked. <laughs> I watched that, with, watched that very keenly. Um, yeah, last well, last, last year I decided to leave myself two months and that still sucked. That so, wasn't last year though, was it? Because uh, they would have cancelled last year's. No, the 2020s, uh, 2020s went ahead. Did it? It happened. Yeah, it happened just before COVID shut us down. Right. Because uh, Blade, I went to Blade Symposium after Perth Knife Show. Ah, oh, that's right, you did too. And then I got trapped in Queensland, almost. Yeah, almost. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Uh, but um, last year was, was I, I gave myself a little bit more time, but this year I've decided I'm going to get started as soon as physically possible. Mm-hmm. Um and I have some blades that I that I've finished that they're sitting on a shelf just waiting to be put on the table, um, but I want to also put some stuff out on my Etsy store very soon, so that's a plan. 
Other than that, uh, I've also been working on finishing up a Hexhawk, custom Hexhawk, that a f- uh, professional engraver actually had to go at, Ty Granger, um, actually came out of retirement to uh, to engrave it. And, uh, and did, did such an amazing job, too. It's a fantastic work. So I'm just doing a little bit more sanding and polishing to get it all shiny, and then I'm going to put it on a really nice curly black butt handle. Um, and it's going to be a really nice display piece that I'll be taking to the uh, the knife show with me. That's a curly black butt you do want to look at. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's it. I think it's curly black. It might be black wood. Uh, I don't know. It's it's one of those two. It's right. an Australia. It's an curly Australian hardwood, uh, <laughs> and it's very pretty. Uh, but anyway, so um, yeah, that's that's pretty much been it. I've also been doing a lot of engraving recently. Uh, which is something I've had to kind of put on the back burner now that I'm working on knives because, uh, unfortunately my engraving isn't making me money at the moment. So got to, got to prioritize paying them bills. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, um, yeah, other than that, that's, that's pretty much been it waiting for my new anvil to be delivered. Um, mm-hmm. which is, it's on its way apparently. So I'm, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath, just waiting by the door, you know, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure what's worse with that having a tracking number or not having a tracking number well see um, the problem is that there is no tracking number I, I found out so oh. um, I got sent the consignment notice and it doesn't actually have a tracking number on it it's got a logistics number just in case they lose it but right. uh, yeah I it, I don't know when it's going to arrive so I've just kind of got to basically stare at the door until till it comes hmm uh, well, actually, it's going to a depot. I've got to pick it up. <laughs> but uh, other than that, my song of the week is uh, a classic that uh, I used to hear all the time when I used to go to restaurants and bars and stuff like that. And I never had it on a playlist, but it was always my favorite song to hear when I was out. Uh, mm. And it's, uh, you know, classic from the... Car- Cardi se- B's WAP. That's it. It's a classic <laughs> from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, <laughs> WAP is totally where it's from. Uh, <laughs> no, it's um, a song by uh, a New Zealand artist, Dave Dobbin. Uh, it's called Slice of Heaven. It was actually written for the Foot Trot Flats um, movie. All right. Uh, and it's a really catchy tune that just kind of sticks in your head uh, and is hilariously fun to dance to. So, Especially if you're like me and your dancing is hilarious. Which, which mine is, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Well, we have been inundated with emails recently. Absolutely (laughs) slammed with them. Unfortunately, we cannot get to them all, man. When it rains, it pours. We're going to have to dedicate another episode to just viewer questions again. That'll be our two-year special. It'll just be us reading emails. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I think it's going to have to be. Um, so apologies if we don't get to you this episode, if we were to read them all out with the whole episode, we'd just be reading emails. So we're just going to, we're going to divvy it up over a few, Mm. but, um, for now we have an email from Lee Cunningham who says, Hey guys, I love the show and appreciate all you do for the community, particularly awareness of mental health. I am still very new to smithing and have a question in regards to the comparative advantages or disadvantages of a round 9 kilo gas bottle forge with isowool, sealed of course, good man, mm. uh, such as the kits sold by Gamaco 
as compared to a square fire brick style such as the Kelpie Forge sold by Firepants Fabrication, particularly in relation to thermal efficiency and maintenance. I have heard the 9 kilo bottle style is better as the flame swirls around the chamber, but the square style seems to lend itself to being more variable, such as adding more bricks for larger projects and removes the risk associated with ice wall. Once again, I am sure I would not be alone in expressing gratitude for all you do for the community and your approachability. Keep up the great work, Lee. That's a Thank good you very question. Much for the question, Lee. Yeah. It is a good question. We were just talking about forges. Um, mm. The um, you're absolutely right. The I mean, well, depends on what you want to try and achieve. Like gas isn't really a problem. Like if you're like Sam and you're just happy to have 25 psi cranking all day and get five minutes out of a gas <laughs> bottle. Um, <laughs> yeah, fire bricks aren't as thermally efficient as uh, fully sealed and castable refractory lined ISO wall. Um, it's just just a matter of fact, but um, you are absolutely correct in saying that you can make fire brick forges really modular. Mm. You can just keep adding lengths with more burners and swap and change them and make them wider and taller and whatever you want. Once you've set castable refractory, changing it in any way is a pain. <laughs> it's an absolute bitch. It is a real pain. It's, you've got you put aside a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the thermal efficiency of ISOL is, is you know, complete. Like, it, it is, there, there is a reason that it's used in industry as an insulator. Uh, and that's because air is the best insulator. Hmm. And what's what ISOL is doing is trapping lots of little air pockets between sheets of ceramic, basically. Um, you can get f- low-density fire bricks, which uh, uh, I normally use the K26 fire bricks. The Kelpie, which you mentioned in your email, is actually sold with a set of K26 fire bricks, which are the lowest density, highest temperature rated fire bricks you can get, uh, which means that they're incredibly fragile. You can easily break them if you treat them wrong, but they are incredibly thermally efficient for a brick. You know, like, they're, n- they're not like, you know, <laughs> clay bricks from, an, uh, from a, from a uh, kilney or something. <laughs> yeah. But um, the big thing is, is that... Uh, for me, is maintenance. Uh, mm-hmm. When it comes to ISO wool, it's a fantastic uh, piece of uh, refractory for a forge, but when you have to replace it, <laughs> it's a bitch. Also, like if you if you get liquid flux onto it, have you ever dropped fairy floss in water? <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty accurate analogy. It's it's awful, but if you somehow destroy the forge floor of a Vibrick forge, you're like, oh no, anyway, slide a new one in there. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, like, I mean, um, I, I've said it to Alex. Um, I, I bought a, a buttload of ISO wool, KO wool, whatever you want to call it, um, recently. And I mean, I have to go through that because I've <laughs> spent the money on it. But when it comes to building my next forge, uh, when this new forge that I've already built dies, I'm going to be going back to bricks because bricks are lower maintenance and they're, you know, a little bit less fragile than isowool. Um, and also you don't have the, the health scares that you do mm. with isowool. Uh, that being said, you should still wear your respirator when cutting them because, you know, they do oh, contain yeah. ceramics and stuff. Yeah. Um, the swirling flame vortex effect 
is something that's really important in stuff like uh, furnaces, where you can put a crucible in the center where it's not going to actually interrupt the flame. But in a horizontal forge where you're going to be putting something on the floor, the moment that vortex comes around the corner and hits the piece, that vortex is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't matter either way. You're going to end up interrupting that vortex, and it's not going to really help you. Uh, the one thing that it does do is uh, stop it from being directly in the flame's path. Yeah. Uh, but you can do that in the square forge. It takes a little bit more work, but you can angle the forge burner in a square forge, and it does the same thing. It creates a vortex because, you know, ninety degree corners you just bounce off at forty five degrees. Mm. Uh, so instead of a smooth circle, it becomes a little bit more, you know, kind of janky. But yeah, it's still a vortex. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, it, it, it is kind of six and one half a dozen of the other. It depends on how much work you want to put into it. If you're building a post box forge, then basically you're you have to build it out of ice oil. Yeah. Um, but if you're building a like a horizontal forge, I I am going to go with fireworks, and I'm just going to ha- take the hit on the thermal efficiency. Mind you, I'm sure you could build a postbox forge with fire bricks. Hmm. If you took the time to cut them out so that they yeah. were, that they created a ring. Hmm. Uh, and I've seen it done to make electric kilns. Yeah. Um, uh, the Art of Weapons did a really good one of those. Yeah, he did. <clears throat> and uh, that, the Vegroil guy. Wild. The Vegroil guy who does casting did another video on that. Building and he made a ridiculous furnace, which actually has like uh, a roller stand next to it, and he actually has hoists that hoist mm. the entire furnace body up, so that he can just grab the crucible from out from underneath it. Wow! It's, uh, it's actually really cool. But um, yeah, the, the thing is that you can do it. It's just a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, you can do uh, anything. It's just if you're willing to put in the work. That's that's exactly right. So yeah, I, I I will probably continue to keep building my post box forges with ISO, but when I come to build my new horizontal forge, I'll be building it with bricks. Mm. Well, thanks for writing in, Lee. Hopefully that answered your question. Uh, next email is from Chris Magnus. I apologise if this is a stuttered reading. It looks like he wrote it really quickly, and <laughs> I. <laughs> I, I do actually have a stutter, so when things are written like this, it's quite difficult to read. Uh, he In says, all his excitement. <laughs> yeah, he says, Hey, cuties, trying to keep this to the point. <laughs> First, my forge is homemade forced air single burner lined with high temp concrete and coated with satanite. I fire it up, put two fire bricks in front an inch apart, I can get the whole inside glowing orange hot with four or five inches of blue flame coming out the gap inside. I spend extra time prepping the pieces super clean and wiped down with acetone before welding them together. I've had five failures this winter so far with one sand mire out of 1095 and mild on the sides. Stick about 75%. That's the only stick I've had in three winters of trying. I even tried the burning board on the anvil trick. Please beat me upside the melon with any help you can. P.S. Listen to every episode from the beginning. I will take all the show advice to heart. You guys are great. Thank you for the shows. Um, so that's from Chris. Thanks, Chris. For- Forge boarding is really one of those things that eventually you just can do it. <laughs> yeah, just it goes <laughs> click and you just you can. Yeah, and until that point it's nightmarish trying it mm. it really is um that that being said there are ways you can hedge your bets and yeah. 
it's it's hard with the the description as it stands. Like it's a little bit difficult to understand exactly what your technique for forge welding is. Uh, I do notice that you don't mention flux. I'm hoping that you're using flux, and you know, if you're not, then that would be a really good place to start. Roy uh, might be listening. Yeah, don't use too much borax. Or Roy <laughs> might come smack you upside the head. But uh, That's it. but yeah, borax or uh, Iron Mountain makes a pretty good uh, product that will help you with uh, forge welding. Uh, but that would be my first place to start. The other one I like that leaps out at me is that you say it's getting orange hot in there and you also get blue flames out the front, which normally mm. means that you're running too much LPG or too much propane. Um, if you're using a forced air burner, it's going to take a little bit of like tweaking to get it running correctly, but you need to lower your uh, propane mix in the air. Uh, and you should be able to get, in a forced air burner with decent castable refractory, you should be able to get it hot enough to burn uh, steel. And I've done it in a couple of uh, furnaces before, which have um, blown for, uh, forced air burners. Oh, so, man, um, I saw an Instagram video recently, I can't remember who posted it, but they had a rib- ribbon burner, forced air ribbon burner, and they were doing forge welding in a gas forge at 1 PSI. Yep. Crazy. Yeah, um... The big thing with force air is that you use big orifices and low pressure, mm. and just and all the pressure comes from the air that you're adding in with the the fan. The fan. Mm. Um, but yeah, you'll need to adjust your fuel and air mix. You might need to choke the fan off. However, you do that, whether that be with a bypass system like Alex and I have spoken about before, uh, or with uh, like a, a dimmer switch kind of setup where you're actually slowing the fan. Um, and then, obviously, running your LPG at a little bit uh, lower pressure. Um, but yeah, you should be able to get up to close to steel melting temperatures in a in a forced air burner forge, mm. like you've described. Uh, if you're not, then yeah, you're in trouble. One thing you can also try is um, our previous guest Kyle Royer uh, from a while back is a big fan of this method, but sealed billets. You don't have to worry too much about uh, scale forming on the inside of your billet if air can't get to the billet. So um, exactly, weld up the sides and you know, yeah, it's it's a bit of a sheet metal bit, over it. bit of a pain with a big old stack of Damascus. But if you don't want to use sheet metal, but on something like a sandmai, it's a it's a pretty straightforward thing to just seal that billet up. Yeah, I, d- I don't do sandmai without sealing like sand is so easy to seal that you know it's it's actually easier than using flux <laughs> especially if you're into mig um it's pretty much just paint by numbers <laughs> yeah that's it it's a hot metal glue gun <laughs> yeah that's right but um, um yeah the the other thing is you can check for uh welding temp um by either drawing out with by forging or grinding a very fine point on a piece of like quarter inch mild steel and bending it to a 90 degree angle and then while, when you believe the billet is up to temperature, should have a bit of flux on it. Um, even if it's sealed, put a little bit of flux on there because when you pull it out, it'll be fuming. And if it's not fuming, then it's not uh, up to forge drilling temperature because borax and fumes at about that temperature. And I have a uh, YouTube video on my channel specifically that's about the dangers of forge welding, like safety yeah. when it comes to forge welding. And in that video, um, it's a good video, you should watch it anyway, but... In that video, I have a slow motion footage, like really slow motion footage of a forge weld taking place. Um, that fuming that Sam's talking about here is very, very clearly and definitively visible. So it'll give you a really good idea of what to look for. 
Yeah, it's a very specific looking fume. It's it like it doesn't look Slow like anything motion else. fire. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But uh, anyway, that little 90, 90 degree, very fine point. If you touch the billet inside the forge with it, it should stick to it, and you should actually have to work to break it off. Uh, if it's not sticking, then that means that it's not up to welding temp yet. At the very least, it should the billet should feel really tacky to the touch. Yeah, it should feel like yeah, there's like glue on the surface that you're just kind of mm. having to pull it off like um, your billet's made of blue tack or something but yeah but that won't work unless you have flux on it because that outside casing is gonna oxidize even on a sealed billet so mm. um but yeah that's a good way to check that and the the billet fuming is a good way to check uh and yeah start with small material um get a piece of like inch by quarter inch flat bar put a douse of uh borax on the end and stick it in the forge it's gonna get up to heat faster than a billet will and you'll be able to test all of the the temperatures at that you know with that piece without wasting two hours of gas trying to get a big billet up to up to temp. So um, mm. and also final, look look for your oh, shadow sorry. as well. Like move yeah. the billet around in there, and if there is a shadow underneath it when you move it, um, then it's it's not the same temperature as your refractory is. Yeah, and uh, soak times are important because the outside might be at welding temp, but the inside might not be. It's like trying to cook a steak in an oven. Yeah, that's it. You got to got to cook it all the way through. It needs Cooks to be from well the done. Outside to the center. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike a you steak, you want your billet to be well done. Yeah, you can't forge weld a medium rare billet. <laughs> <laughs> um, my my final note would be if you're forge welding on your anvil, the burning board's actually a good idea if you're forging in winter because I imagine you're in America uh, or in Europe or something like that uh, where it gets freezing cold. Proper cold. Yeah, proper cold. It doesn't get proper cold here in Australia. We just have a mild summer for winter. Um, I don't know. I get negative 10 well, I, I, C I, down You here. don't count. You're a Tasmanian. <laughs> <laughs> but, Even um, that's yeah. nothing, though. So, yeah, I um, would say the burning board technique is really good because it's actually going to insulate your billet from the anvil face because unless you're preheating your anvil, that super cold anvil is just going to suck all of the heat out of your billet before you even have a chance to weld it. Yeah. Uh, when when it comes to making Damascus, moving quickly is important. And on that note, my, my final point is um, to do a, a, a test in your forge. You, you're, you're to, you really need to understand that the most of the time, if you are getting up to temperature, the only real thing that's going to be inhibiting your welds from taking place is the formation of scale between mm-hmm. your layers. And so you really need to get a sense of your environment, your forge... Uh, how quickly you have to move before that scale forms. Because if you've never seen scale form, you can actually watch it. If you clean off a piece of steel, uh, particularly like a a bar, like an inch wide or or two inch wide bar, clean it so it's nice and shiny, stick it in your forge, bring it up to a a, a dull yellow, like a serious proper heat, uh, and then pull it out and look down the bar. And after about three to five seconds it will go from looking perfectly clean to all of a sudden just it will scale over in the space of a quarter of a second it's not everyone sort of thinks of scale formation as this gradual thing that happens over time when it comes out of the oxidizing the uh, fuel rich atmosphere of the forge and enters the atmosphere the timer starts and all of a sudden it will just go and it'll be scaled up take note of how long it takes for that to happen and try and set your weld in that in less time than that 
obviously the amount of time that you actually have is going to depend on the size of the billet that you're working but it gives you an idea starting with something like a, a chunky bit of bar and if it uh, and if it's scaling up while it's in the forge that means you're running too much oxygen yes because um, you're and, oxidizing the billet in the forge and a, a big mistake that I see is people actually bringing their billet all the way up to like an, a bright orange to before pulling it out to flux uh, the billet yeah no you want to be really cold yeah if you pull that billet out when it's orange or above it's going to oxidize when it's thrown into the atmosphere if it's a red heat it won't develop the forge scale um Hmm. and do that experiment that i just described before at a red heat and you'll see what happens when you look down it you'll notice that nothing forms on it so when you put your flux on there um, it will be hot enough to liquefy the flux and turn it into a capillary fluid that will suck into all your gaps right nicely, but it won't be enough hot enough to actually form that scale. And if you want to get flux on it before putting it into the forge, you can actually have your cold billet stacked, welded, ready to go in a bucket of kerosene. Uh, and then when you pull it out of the kerosene, the billet will be wet and the flux will stick to it while it's cold. And then you can stick that entire thing into the forge. And that way it'll have flux from the outset. And the kerosene also prevents oxidization while it's sitting waiting to be thrown into the forge as well. Yeah. So. And just don't keep your eyebrows too close to the door of your forge the no, first time you put it in. up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, obviously take precautions when handling kerosene near a forge. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously. You know, come on, guys. Safety yeah. first. And our final email that we're going to be dealing with this week actually is not an email. It came in through Instagram, and it's from Josh Oliver. And he says, Hey, guys, I wanted to say I love the podcast, and I've caught up completely on all the episodes. I'm still very much a noob to blacksmithing. I'm currently setting up a new inside forge, planning on making two a solid fuel and a gas my question is ventilation in the shop i have several windows i can open and am planning to install a blower fan in the back blowing past the windows and out the door my main problem is the chimney i can't modify it and it's made of red brick i have around four feet maybe a bit more from uh, between the hood from the forge and where it attaches to said chimney would that be enough distance for the air to cool so it doesn't cause damage to the brick Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it would be, especially if you were to put a smoke shelf in there. Yeah. And and the big thing is, um, like, uh, fire brick for chimneys is normally solid terracotta clay, right? Like, it's the, the, very heat resistant. Uh, you can use it as forge lining. Like, uh, <laughs> I have seen gas forges built out of those red clay bricks that have been at welding temperature now that being said they are terrible as forge lining because they're incredibly high density and they're very low refractive so like they suck heat um (laughs) so Mm -hmm. i wouldn't advise it but they can so therefore they're not going to be negatively affected by heat yeah uh, the mortar might, which is, you know, another thing, but it's way far away from where it's going to be hot enough to actually affect that. A really good um, thing that you can actually do to see this, and I actually show, when, whenever I have students in my forge and I'm running the solid fuel forge, I like to show them this because when you see a forge for the first time, it's, it's an intimidating thing. Um, mm. But I like to point out to them just how uh, small the quote-unquote danger zone is. And I'll actually hold my hand 
only about a foot in the air above a forge that is hot enough to heat steel. And it's fine. I can just hold my hand there and it's very warm, but it's not enough to burn my hand. And uh, you can keep it there quite quite happily. Move it 10 centimeters lower and you will not be able to keep your hand there. Um, (laughs) The the heat dissipates very, very quickly. Yeah, air is an incredible insulator and it will, you know, prevent heat from radiating through. Yeah, so you should be perfectly safe there. So, but As far for- as it goes on, like, extraction systems and all that kind of stuff, and, and whether or not you'll have carbon monoxide problems, you sound about where I'm at with my extraction system, like a fan blowing across me into out to the open door and, uh, you know, a couple windows open. I haven't seen a problem, and I think that you, that you won't see a problem. Uh... Uh, Alex and I have discussed the idea of just buying a uh, carbon monoxide um, Alarms. alarm. Yeah, they're cheap. Uh, they're, yeah, they're not expensive. They're battery operated. You stick one in a you know in a corner of your roof or something like that, and it'll go off if there's a buildup of carbon monoxide. Yeah, strap one to uh, your forehead. Yeah, that's it. But um, yeah, I, I think that you'll be fine as far as that goes. Just keep an eye on yourself. Obviously, if you feel yourself becoming dizzy, if you feel yourself, you know, your voice deepening. Uh, we've spoken about the effects of carbon monoxide poisoning pre- previously. Scary um, stuff. It is. Uh, you know, be aware of your surroundings. Be aware of how you're feeling. And uh, yeah, just go from there. But I think you'll be fine. Yeah. Well, thanks for writing in, Josh. Sam, who has been inspiring you this week? Well, um... It's funny because it's it's very uh, in keeping with our Forgecast challenge, but um, it's a man that I've followed for quite a long time. He's a historical weapons maker. Uh, he's actually well known in the industry for it, and uh, he's actually worked with uh, Matt Easton from Scholar Gladiatoria uh, on YouTube. Uh, he's a Frenchman by the name of Fabrice Cognon. Uh, he goes by Fab Bladesmith, all one word, uh, on Instagram. And uh, the thing that really inspired me recently is that he's actually been making a lot of slip joints. Um, <laughs> friction folders, sorry, not slip joints. Um, and one of his more recent projects has been Ravens. And basically the body of the, the friction folder is the wings and body of the raven, and then the tang of the blade is the raven's head when wow. it's closed. And it looks absolutely sick. Um, he's also done some really cool ones that almost look like parang blades, um, but as a friction folder with ring pulls and, and all kinds of cool stuff. I, I just really love his very simplistic, but very kind of refined style. Um, he makes some pretty sick swords as well um, that I have seen in my feed all the time and kind of go, ooh, grabby hands, I want that. <laughs> uh, and he also did a really interesting uh, <laughs> really interesting job where he did a pinned bolstered chef's knife, but the bolsters were keyhole. Mm. Right? So the, the, they were keyhole bolsters, keyhole to the scales, but they were pinned onto the tang. It was really interesting way to go about the the fit up and it just it looked stunning Mm. um but yeah fab fab bladesmith on instagram he's he's actually a fantastic smith and a lot of his work is incredibly approachable even to the beginner like it wouldn't take much to recreate some of his more simple designs uh in a very basic setup 
because he does very traditional kind of forging and very traditional kind of uh, builds because he is a very you know traditional kind of guy. Uh, he actually made French nails recently, which are basically just bent pieces of metal with a dagger blade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, he's he's always been kind of on my radar and stuff like that with a lot of the work that he does being so simple um, and very approachable. He's also done like case hardening in a forge nice of of bloomery steel so he's like made wrought iron in a bloomery furnace and then case hardened it in his own forge um <laughs> you know it's, it's like he does very traditional stuff um and i highly suggest you check him out but uh yeah if you want ideas for making your, your forge cast challenge friction folder check out fab bladesmith because those ravens are really cool yeah absolutely but uh, who's been uh, inspiring you this week, Alex? Actually, somebody we've had on the show before as a guest. Um, it's uh, ABS Master Smith, David Lish. Um, Who isn't inspired by David Lish? I am regularly inspired by <laughs> David Lish. Um, that man just, is a walking inspiration. He's, yeah, and he's so sharing with what he teaches as well and what he hmm. does, and he's just his whole vibe and attitude towards the craft is so unique um and in such a positive way and i i I often wish that the the world was filled with more people like that um the reason that he's inspiring me this week is because as many people who know my work know i I like making damascus jewelry i i have a style that i i do and it's been slowly evolving over time and i have a lot of fun with it to be honest I, i really uh, have quite a bit of personal satisfaction from doing it and the fact that they usually last about two minutes before disappearing uh, shows that people seem to like them mm-hmm. um, so when I saw in David Lish's Instagram story uh, him just knock out this beautiful Damascus pendant I noticed that what he had done for the hanging system uh, that it would it was a pendant necklace pendant um, that uh, the hanger would normally be like a drilled hole that's been shaped correctly and everything but what yeah. he did was he drilled two holes next to each other and took gold wire and riveted mm-hmm. the wire into these holes and then twisted the back up in this really organic shape to create a hanger and I th- I thought it was copper at first because um, the, the, of the lighting in the in the video but it was actually gold. Yeah, well, it's, it's David. It's David Lish. Like he, yeah, he right. plays he's a with pirate. Gold like most, like he plays with gold. Like by most people play with copper. He's a real life pirate. So I he truly is. Else. So, <laughs> he but is anyway, the friendliest pirate. <laughs> I'm, I'm very conscious of of you know people coming up with cool things and it being like their thing, and I don't want to step on toes in that. So I messaged him and I'm like, that is super cool. Do you mind if I give that a go and, and try it and something of mine? And, like, this is a guy who's very well respected in the industry. Like, it, it's no small feat to actually become an ABS master smith. Yeah, um, no. yeah it's not exactly something that you can just sort of accidentally fall into. This, is, this takes work. <laughs> and um, his response was, he's like, yeah, man, just, just do it. Have fun. Make people happy. Live large. <laughs> and uh, I just thought that was so great to come from somebody of like his caliber uh to have that response just just have fun 
make people happy, you know? Absolutely. That's, That's hilarious. Great. That's awesome. It's almost exactly like when we invite, when I invited him onto the show it was, you know, like, Hey man, love your work. We'd love to have you on the show. And he's like, yeah, man, let's set it up. I don't even know how phones work, but let's go. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> uh, he's such a friendly dude. And you know, he's always saying that, you know, if you have questions, reach out to him. And, yeah. You know, he is honestly one of the friendliest people that I know. The, the world needs more people like that. And I'm, I'm proud to, to be able to, you know, be following him and, and him following me and, and be able to chat with him and that he's, he's just such an awesome guy um, and that, that attitude is it, it just brightened my day not so much yay I get to try this with it and guilt, do it guilt free it was just that response yeah. like yeah because I, I, I really love that moment of seeing my work in people's hands and having them fall in love with it it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a massive driving force for my work and uh, I love it when people get excited about things and that's why I'm always going on about, you know, I get excited when people um, buy things from me like 20 minutes after I posted it because that sort of thing only happens when somebody has just fallen in love with it. And it's yeah, like imp- it. imp- impulse. And I love that. And then I get photos from those people with them like wearing it or holding or using it and things. And I love that stuff. I really love it. So to feel a bit of that come from the other side of the world really because david is pretty much literally yeah, on the literally other side, on the of the world. side of the planet <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> yeah. it just it was a really nice moment and uh yeah so i, I am gonna i'm gonna make people happy yeah and i mean the, the big thing for me as well is that you know when you've got people trying to copy your design or taking inspiration from something that you've done in this industry, there are some people who get really uptight and want to just hold on to it and like, no, it's my thing. Yeah. But like me personally, and I think David's very much the same, it's when I see people, like when I started making harpoon points and then a whole bunch of other people started making harpoon points and saying, you know, oh, I'm doing this because I saw Samtown's Bladesmith do it. I just, I love that. I love mm. the idea that someone saw something that I did and went, Got hell yeah, I'm do it. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, that's something that we really undervalue is that, that willingness to share, you know, our, our art and our craft. And that's one thing that I've always loved about David is that he's just kind of like, yeah, man, if you want to do what I do, do it, go for it. It's the same with Lin Ray. Yeah. You know, like he makes the x-ray knives and he could like, he could put a copyright on that. But instead he actually gave the, the whole design away to people. Like he's like, yeah, go for it. Yeah, Make there's it. so I many videos it. of him lecturing it on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, and, and like, you know, he's he's had people, like, he's commissioned people to draw up, like, the step-by-step of how to do it. There's a poster out there somewhere, which I want to buy, of how to forge an x-ray knife, step-by-step. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where he just, and he'll comment on any photo that you upload of an x-ray knife that you've made, he'll comment on it, guaranteed. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. Those are the kind of guys that, you know, constantly inspire us. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, David Lish. Go check him out. If you haven't checked out David Lish Knives, David yeah, Lish he, Knives. Yeah, he, he's on uh, Instagram. It's just David Lish. Uh, oh, right. da- David spelled like you'd expect. Uh, L-I-S-C-H. All one word, David Lish. So uh, absolutely check him out. So with emails and inspiration out of the way and 45 minutes into the show... It's time for Tool Time. Tool Time. Tool Time is brought to you by the place with the steel and the kits and the toys, Creative Man. If you want to make knives, you need an account on their amazing website. Mm. Do it now. 
Do it. <laughs> Do it now. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Bjorn. <laughs> so tool of the week this week is something that uh, we don't actually see enough people making, but once you have them in your shop, they are so handy, and that is pickup tongs. Absolutely you, indispensable. Tongs are a, a widely hated thing to make by blacksmiths. <laughs> some yes. people are, you know, absolute masochists and love doing it. You know, looking at you, Dan. <laughs> um, yeah, Dan. Most Jeez. people, though, hate it. And so if you're going to make tongs, you kind of want them to be as... That's why wolf jaws are so popular. It's like, if I'm going to make tongs, I'm going to make one set that's going to do everything. Do everything poorly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but of all of the types of tongs to make, pickup tongs are actually the easiest because they don't ever really have to hold anything so tightly that you can't make them out of, like, you know, 10 mil square. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, um, a lot of my old pickup tongs that I used to make were out of 10 mil square, exactly. Yeah, three-eighths for the the Americans. Free yeah, I, I, I mean, I recently made a set of pickup tongs, but they're actually technically hammer tongs. Yeah. Uh, pick, pickup slash hammer tongs that I made out of uh, coil spring because and I ha- made them stand up to just, heat. Yeah, hammer tongs are just hardcore pickup tongs. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But being able... The, the big thing for me is having those those circular tips at the end means that you can pick up things that are directly, like, on the ground, flat. So if you've got something like a flat bar that's fallen on the ground and it's still red hot... <laughs> I was actually just watching this for Forged and Fire before we um, <laughs> record the show. Somebody's holding a, a, a bar of 5160 in bladesmithing tongs, and they mishit and drop it on the ground, and they're trying to pick up this bar <laughs> with bladesmithing tongs, and anybody that's ever tried doing this is laughing listening to this right yeah, now. <laughs> I think every one of us has done the tong shuffle at some point. Yeah, that's <laughs> just, right. just pushing along with the tongs until we can get it up against a hard surface to like flip it up on its side. So <laughs> and then you realize that surface is flammable yeah. normally normally it's the anvil stand yeah. <laughs> no. it, but the thing is that with pickup tongs you literally just bend down boop, got it yep i mean they're uh, literally it's in the name yeah those are pickup tongs there you go I, I have double hoop pickup tongs in my shop and they've got nice little flat tips which are also really good for holding super small stuff that i want mm. forge if i'm like trying to draw out an off cut of damascus or something to make a pendant it's a really good way to hold them um it's they're, they're not strong tongs they're not designed to hold big heavy stuff um, and they're not they really are, designed to hold anything while you're forging either like no you know, most of the time and most of the time and anything outside of something incredibly small um and another thing good thing is um i mean everyone who does solid fuel forging would have a rake a coal rake one would hope mm-hmm. um, but if you're doing charcoal forging coal rakes will only get you so far having pickup tongs is really good for that one big old coal that rolls out onto the floor and <laughs> like um yep. yeah anyone who's tried to pick one up with a rake is and you've all done it don't look at me like that i know you've done it um <laughs> <laughs> or tried to pick them up with a normal set of tongs and end up crushing it into like six different bits. Yeah, that's right. Whereas pick up tongs, that's a really easy process. So I know you hate making tongs, and I know we keep telling you to make different types of tongs. Make <laughs> some pick up tongs. If you haven't got them already, it's a really beneficial thing to have in your shop. Yeah, message me and ask me to make a set of uh, really simple 10 millimeter square pick up tongs, and I'll make a video on it. Yeah, Sam will show you how to do it. Six mil rivets, all you need. Yep. Quarter, quarter inch. <laughs> That's pretty much all I use. <laughs> yeah, I know. Even on the most hardcore of tongs. 
Well, no, I have. You I can have make power hammer tongs for if you have noticed. I have been using ten mil recently, okay. uh. mainly because I made that rivet set, and I really like my nice dome rivets. <laughs> yeah, you do get nicer domes on a ten mil rivet. You really do. It's a lot easier to dome a ten mil rivet than it is a six mil. It sure. really is. So, uh, especially when you know how to handle your peen. Mm, yes, use the peen. That's right. Now available so, on this handcraft Red Bull. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> now that brings us into our topic of the week, and this is one that I've been wanting to do for ages because I keep getting the same question. I'm sure Sam gets the same question as well. Now, all the time, a lot of you people listening to this show do not have Paragon heat treatment kilns. You don't have crazy long triple burner forges. You don't Total have plebs, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> All you've got is some, you know, grocery store purchasable oil of mm-hmm. some description, an ammo tin to hold it in, or some, you know, some square tubing that you've welded a plate on the bottom to that keeps falling over and you've been meaning to bolt to something but haven't gotten around to it yet. Um, and <laughs> you don't you don't That's, that felt very pointed. You, <laughs> you don't have uh, you know, aluminium quench plates and liquid nitrogen and all this sort of thing. And so, heat treatment of knives that you make or tooling that you make out of the steels that you have available is never by the books. Now, if you want to get things to the maximum performance that those steels offer uh, that you're making it out of, there are scientifically tested, proven, metallurgically written documents out there that tell you exactly the steps that you need to do to normalize um quench temper to get that perfect hardness and there are companies that'll do it for you there are but if you have a little gas bottle forge and an ammo tin full of peanut oil and and an oven in your house it might seem a little daunting and we keep it we've talked about forge and fire and some of the problems that comes with it um one of the things that uh problems that comes up a lot is that people see them just dunk any type of steel from 5200 to w1 to o1 to 5160 into their mm. vat of mystery oil pull it out immediately <laughs> Uh, so that it catches on fire and then mysteriously start chopping into ice blocks with it. You don't see the temper <laughs> process. You don't see anything else. And yet, uh, we can, you, then you'll go on the internet and have all these people saying, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do that. And you think, yeah, but I've seen them do it on Forge and Fire. And they managed to cut through blocks of ice and clay pots and all that sort of thing. So can't be that bad, can it? It can. Um, mm. And... What we wanted to do was an episode on how to get decent or reasonable heat treats on some just a handful of commonly accessible steels without all of the fancy equipment. Now, this will not be the ideal heat treatment for all of these steels, although a couple of them will be because they're actually really easy to heat treat. Yeah, very, it'll be very close to the ideal, yeah. But we're going to talk about how to get decent heat treats nothing to write home about but something that'll work if this is the only steel you've got available so starting at the bottom of the queue is one that is very popular at the moment because niels vandenberg is always going on about how he loves it 1075 yes the eutectic steel Mm. 
<laughs> you got to say your name, say say your word. Well, no, because this is a eutectic steel, not a hyper eutectic or a hypo eutectic. It's right on the eutectic. Right. Is there a difference between eutectic and eutectoid? Uh, so the eutectic is the is the line. Uh, hypo eutectoid and hyper eutectoid are just you know above or below the eutectic line. Right. Well, there you go. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough of that nerdistry. So, well, Sam is the resident nerd here when it comes to heat treatment. So, ten seventy five. How would you do it with a minimal setup? Well, so basically you could mix 1075, uh, 1084, 15, and 20, uh, all of those medium carbon low alloy steels into the same bunch for a process. Uh, so very similar the, to 1084 or 15 and 20's heat treatment. Yeah, almost identical. Well, um, in, that, in that case, that's, that's very easy because uh, if you have access to a magnet, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're doing pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the much, secret yeah. weapon. Yeah. <laughs> Having a decent magnet nearby is always good. Yeah. Um, the, I have gotten phenomenal grain structure. I mean, like, that perfect velvet. The, the mm-hmm. thing that we all look for. The closest I've ever gotten to that with... Uh, it was with 15 and 20. And I... Uh, this, uh, it was the most backyard bogan heat treat ever. I basically took it up to non-magnetic... Uh, and then put it into, buried it completely in vermiculite overnight, mm-hmm. completely overnight. Uh, and then the next day, I normalized it three times um, with a hanging air normalization cycle. Uh, and I mean completely to cool, not not any warmth detectable <laughs> from touch at all. Yep. Um, and that's completely to cool in Tasmania, by the way. And it was yeah, yeah, and it yeah. was autumn. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, after that, doing that three times, I then chased it with a magnet. Like, I was very gradually passing it through the forge, careful not to hotspot any areas, checking with a magnet, pull it out, check it, pull it out, check it, pull it out, check it, keep checking it until I got to that non-magnetic. And I had preheated, it was actually fast quench oil, it was Horton's Q. Mm -hmm. Um, I had preheated that to 70 degrees Celsius. Um, and I quenched it in that as soon as it... Uh, I, I detected non-magnetic and then I left it in there for what, 20 or 30 seconds more and then went into 70 degree oil. And after tempering that, uh, I did one cycle of two hours at 190 degrees and then another cycle of two hours at 200 degrees. And mm-hmm. at the end of that, this was 15 and 20, I had just velvet grain structure. This yeah. was a deliberate test that I did, which I then snapped. Yeah, to to see what I'd achieve as as you should. Any any bladesmith who's using janky homemade heat treating should be yep. testing their grain regularly. I did this because I hadn't done much work with fifteen and twenty, and then happened to come into a lot of it, and I wanted to make sure that I got really good good grain on it. And I was shocked at how just homogenous and smooth that inner grain surface was. It was crazy. Yeah, and it's funny because uh, 15 and 20 has a very similar uh, alloy profile to 1075, which is mm. one of the reasons why Niels likes it so much. And 1084 uh, as well. Uh, so 1084 has got slightly higher carbon and also has got a lot more manganese. But um, the, the heat treatment process, though, is very, very, very similar. Much the yeah, same. very similar heat treat process, yeah. So um, you'd probably be able to get similar results from that with the same, yeah. same one thing that I just described there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's pretty much what you want to do. Um, neat tip, get a mechanics extendable uh, magnet. Yes, that's <laughs> you know, what they're, I use. They're, Telescopic they're pretty one. cheap. Keeps your hands away from the... <laughs> From yeah. the hot thing. That's right. You know, back back when I started, I was using a, a piece of magnet that I'd broken out of the back of a speaker. Uh-huh. And it, I just had it stuck to the side of my anvil and I'd have to go over and like tap the knife against it. But the problem yeah. was that I'd always end up tapping it a little too hard. Yeah. Bend the knife. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And if it was just below magnetic, like it was just below that, uh, the, the austenite uh, phase, then it would stick to the magnet, but it would be soft enough that the magnetic force would actually bend the knife <laughs> so the little the little magnet on the end of the extendable rod is actually a really good idea really really good i've been using one of those for a couple of years now and it, I, I agree they're really good because depending on the size of the knife you want to be the further away from it or closer uh, yes. a telescopic magnet is very handy for that another good little pro tip that is this is actually one that i picked up from you big fudge mm-hmm. um if you're using the home oven to do your tempering and not a a heat treatment kiln bury the knife in a tray of sand yes. fine sand and uh, it gets yeah, rid of that playground hot... sand or yeah that... aquarium sand or something like that domestic ovens we've talked about this before domestic ovens have hot spots in them a lot of the time like one part of the oven will be one temperature and the other one might be 10 15 degrees difference in temperature and when you're tempering a mm-hmm. knife that makes a big difference putting it in a tray of fine sand burying it properly in there helps evenly distribute that heat and it does a really good job you will find more of those blue oxides build up faster mm-hmm. so you won't quite get the same crisp golden color that you're generally looking for so don't freak out um, yeah but it, it's for any oven heat treat it you just can't go past using it it's a great technique yeah no it's it's definitely useful it's one of those ways of evening out things uh i would also advise if you don't have something like a post box forge uh, or a forge that has a relatively good um, angle on the burner so that the flame is not contacting the area through which you're putting the knife, mm-hmm. I would suggest put putting a muffle. Yeah, put it, put it some muffle in there. So either some C-channel or um, an actual like a tube. Square tube. Um, that's big enough to actually fit the knife and basically completely seal the knife off from direct flame contact. Yeah. Because uh, that way you're going to be oxidizing it less, which means you're going to get less decarburization. And you're also going to be more even in your heat because you won't get hot spots. Yes. Um, you can you turn also... It, but gas, you basically turn it into a gas-powered oven rather than a, a forge. Yeah. You can also prevent oxidation by putting a thin film of uh, either refractory cement over it or yep, even, just, even just like Lanco 156 from Bunnings, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, just a very thin slip. Like, you know, you just... Get a watery just... paste of it. A yeah. single grain thickness yeah. <laughs> is a good way to do it. Uh, I do that for whenever I have engraved blades um, or something like that. I'll, I'll coat them in satanite to stop them from decarburizing. Mm. So that covers 1075, 1084, 15, 20, all sort of in one sweep. You'll get a decent heat treatment if you follow those steps. What mm. about 5160 or SUP9 or K245? All very similar steels. Yeah, they're very, very close together. Um, so they're basically the same. Like for for the most part, they they'll be relatively similar. They probably um, want a slower quench than something like Horton's Q. Yeah. So I mean, you, fast quench oils uh, are mostly for very high carbon, um, you know, kind of steels. Uh, even for ten seventy five, ten uh, ten eighty four, and fifteen and twenty, they actually 
are recommended to be done in a medium speed quench oil. Uh, they can survive a fast speed, um, but yeah, they're, they're actually recommended for, for a medium speed. Um, and it's the same with 5160. Uh, so you most of the time with 5160 or Sup9, you're going to be going into something like canola oil or, uh, you know, <laughs> sorry, Niels. Um, but uh, yeah, like rice bran oil, like your basic food grade oils, they're a medium speed quenchant in the most part, for the most part. And at about 30 degrees Celsius, uh, they're going to be about the right speed to quench uh, 5160. And again, you want to be just over non-magnetic. So you don't want to be at non-magnetic. You want to be just over it. So uh, normally austenitizing temperature is about like 50 degrees Celsius above non-magnetic. So it's a very slight change in color. Uh, and one thing I can recommend is if you want to stop using your magnet all the time, because it can get a little bothersome, grow to know the color of the blade when it turns non-magnetic in your shop, right? Yes, like, and it will make be sure that you're doing your heat treatment at the same time of day, mm -hmm. uh, at night preferably, so that the only light is the ambient light from your, you know, like the light, the overhead lights. Mm -hmm. Control as much of the light as you can so that you can get used to what the color looks like. And that's actually going to make it a lot easier because I've got to the point now where I can heat treat without having to use a magnet because I know what the temperature looks like in my forge. Yeah. Um, but that's only works if you've done the, the magnet testing first, because, <laughs> uh, what looks non-magnetic in one light will be welding temperature in another. Yes, <laughs> so, <that's right>. especially <laughs> if you're in like direct sunlight. So, you know, yeah. Um, absolutely. But yeah, for sub nine, again, the same, same process as Alex described your normalization cycles. You don't really need to do three, but I suggest three in a step down. So um, do your first one over to magnetic. Do the second one just when it's turning non-magnetic. And then the third one, get Slightly it to where it's cool. just non-magnetic. And then you know, and just do that step down. Because what normally happens is you tend to overshoot um, on your temperatures quite a bit. Uh, in a, in a non-temperature controlled environment, you're always going to end up overshooting your temperatures just a little bit too much. And obviously the more you overshoot the temperature, the larger your grain's going to be. Um, so yeah, just, just do that three step down and that's going to make sure that you're kind of bracketing the right temperature for normalization rather than kind of crossing your fingers and praying. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, obviously if you're not getting it past non-magnetic, you're not actually normalizing the grains, so you need to get it to that non-magnetic stage, but yeah. Make sure you're doing that three-stage step down. Yeah. Um, it's not necessary if you have a, a heat treating kiln because you can do one normalization cycle and get the complete result you need. Yeah. Um, but so that's because you have, temp yeah, you have temperature Yeah, we're talking about control, backyard yeah. setup here. That's um, it. We're, we're talking absolute bare minimum. I mean, you could improve your odds by getting something like a laser temperature thermometer. Yes. Uh, or Although a thermocouple. One, ones that deal with temperatures that high um, are expensive. expensive. Yeah. Very expensive. About, yeah. you know, 600 700 Australian dollars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not cheap. So, um, and please, when you're doing your normalizing cycles, be mindful of where you are putting it to cool down. Uh, yeah. we, Sam and I both like to hang in still air, um, yeah. but it's another thing that I see all the time on Forge from Fire is people laying it flat on their anvils. Mm. Don't or do it. it around. <laughs> yeah, just don't don't do anything that would make one part cool faster than the rest. Yeah, if you're making a hidden tang knife and you don't have a hole in it to hang it from, tack weld with a with a stick welder or something like that, a little nut on the end or a washer on the end of the tang. 
I'll right, do you, you I'll do you one better. Hang a bulldog clip from your roof. Well, that's true. Yeah, just bulldog clip it. No, yeah, that'll work. Yeah. I mean, I, I prefer the, the security of having it welded to it rather than relying on the strength of the bulldog clip. <laughs> but Well, yeah, know, I'm usually make smaller knives than Sam does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't hang a muso buoy from a, from a bulldog clip. <laughs> You're not using a big enough bulldog clip, mate. Well, this is true. This is very true. You need to invest in some new ones. Yeah, that's right. But, um, yeah, so the, there are ways to hang the blades, and that's pretty much the, the safest way. If you can't do that, if there's nothing to hang it from, then put it tang first vertically in your in your vice Mm. right because the tang it doesn't really matter if the tang is not perfectly grained it's the blade that we're worried about yeah so if you clamp the tang in the vice then the tang is going to cool down faster than the blade will but that's not a big deal um and if you're building a knife big enough that that much strain is going to be put on the tang you should be bluing that area anyway yeah you're going to be tempering that tang back uh, when it comes to tempering at home, the oven is obviously the best way. And as Alex said before, digging it into a tray of sand is going to help you. Um, but provided you don't have that, I have done a series on my YouTube channel. Uh, if you look up the begin- uh, the knife making playlist or the beginner blacksmithing playlist. You can I do think it in front of your forge. There. Um, you can do it in front of your forge. Uh, if you're really scared about screwing it up, then you can put it edge first in your vice and blew the spine with a blowtorch and then just pull it out of the vice and the vice jaws will act as a heat sink to protect the edge and then you basically just let that color run and you temper it like you would a chisel or you know a hot cut or something like that which you know you just use the latent heat in the blade Um, Um, medieval smiths would actually have a special set of tongs I know we're talking about making another set of tongs now. It's a very, very thick pair of tongs. A very, very thick pair of tongs where the jaws were actually looked like two big thick bars that would clamp together uh, and they would actually lay them in the forge and get them properly hot and actually clamp the back of the knife at at intervals and they would uh, temper it watching the colors run that way it's a very unique way of actually doing it Um, you can see that technique used in joey vandersteeg's video on visiting the uh museum archeon uh watching a traditional Iron Age blacksmith's knife made, I think mm. is the name of the video. That's a good video. And Yeah, it's a fantastic video. And uh, yeah, he uses that technique to temper his blade. So, yeah. Quite effectively as well. Mm. So our next most common steels are W1, W2. Also mm. pretty easy to get a decent heat treatment on with a basic setup. Yeah. Uh, in this case, uh, so W1 and W2, the W, as most people know, stands for water. Do not quench these in water. <laughs> at, <laughs> like, at most, an interrupted yeah, quench. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing heat treatment in your backyard and you're not, you don't have a professional setup, it's likely that you're not, you know, like an ABS journeyman or, or something like that, where you're not trying for, you know, performance testing and stuff like that. Um, you can sacrifice a couple of points of hardness for the security of not ending up with three pieces of blade. <laughs> uh, so... If you're going to quench W1, W2, stuff like that, if you're scrapping, then normally it'll come in the form of files. It's the same with 1095. Um, go for a medium speed quench. Go for your standard, you know, oils. Uh, it will get hard. It won't get as hard as you would in the faster quench, because obviously you're not going to get all of that martensite transference. But again, it's a hypo-eutectoid steel, so it's got more carbon than it needs. Um, and you're going to get end up with a usable knife uh, rather than several pieces of what used to be a usable knife. Um, 
but yeah, as far as heat treatment goes, normalization cycles and stuff like that being the same as everything else, but um, with the higher alloy steels, uh, like 5160 and, and 1084 and stuff like that, they can afford a little bit of soak time at heat, right? Like, they can afford it. They don't need it, but they can afford it. W1 and cannot. No. Any You'll time get... over temperature, that grain is growing. It doesn't matter whether you... Irreparable grain growth. Yeah, if you even if you're in an even heat kiln, like even if you're in a kiln, every second you spend at the uh, austenitizing temperature, you are growing grain. Right? It, it needs to be an instantaneous. You get to temperature, you're in the oil. Yeah. <laughs> it's that's one of the reasons why hyperutectoid steels are such a pain in the ass, is because they are incredibly touchy when it comes to temperatures. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you want really good results, you need to be pretty quick in Turn your off the testing music. of temperature. Make sure nobody's going to interrupt you. <laughs> Focus. Yeah, when when the when the steel goes into the fire, your mind goes with it. Yeah, <laughs> you it. Know, very much so. And, um, and yeah, so basically that's the only trick to W one and W two. There are a bunch of others when it comes to like forging and stuff like that, but that's not a big deal uh, in what we're talking about in heat treatment. The one thing you got to do is just not leave it at temperature when you're normalizing or when you're quenching. And remember, guys, these are all things that can be done with just a very basic home setup. This thing, the major addition to your shop, the major tool that you work on, is your focus. Yes. That's something you can get for free. Mm-hmm. Now, the dreaded steel in the list. <laughs> I know Sam's been looking forward to this, and this is why I've saved it to the last. <laughs> <laughs> this is one that it, most people will tell you don't don't bother with if you don't have proper heat treatment kilns and things however 52100 mm-hmm. commonly found in roller bearings and bearing, bearing races, races and, and things like that uh, yeah is a phenomenal steel mm-hmm. absolutely it has a Absolute high enough steel. chromium content to act very much like a stainless even though it is not a stainless and it is still a carbon steel so it gets hard boy it gets mm-hmm. so hard you have to usually over temper it back a little bit for certain knife applications uh, yeah you, you want to put it any through any kind of shock you need yeah. to temper it <laughs> yeah but heat treating it by the books is a bit of a process Oh, um, yeah, you've got carbide-reducing cycles and yeah. all kinds of crazy stuff. And that, that's that's when you've got all the gear. Mm-hmm. But what if somebody ain't got the gear, Sam? What if Prepare just... to lose two out of every five blades you make. <laughs> yeah. I'm just just flat out, I'm telling you right now, this I make is... blades out of 52100 regularly, mm. and I don't have a heat-treating kiln. I don't have anything like that. You guys know how much of a steel nerd I am. You guys know how much I take my steel seriously mm. i lose two out of every five blades that i make out of 52 100 yeah and i'm i'm doing everything i can to make it right right mm-hmm. like i'm using a medium speed quench which is what they recommend for 52 100 i'm making sure that my uh carbide reducing cycles i i do the carbide reducing cycles you guys don't have to but um you know i i do everything i can and it still cracks because yeah. this stuff is so touchy yeah uh, and one of the big problems that it, with cracking is forge, is during the forging. Um, you know, a lot of people either forge too cold or too hot, uh, and all it takes is overheating it once, and it's done. Yeah, you want a nice uh, bright orange, and then you just want to stick it back in as soon as that <laughs> color starts to fade. Yeah, but you don't want to get it up to the yellows or the whites because you're done. If that's that happens. it, yeah. 
Uh, it is such a touchy material, and that's one of the reasons why people suggest not using it when you're a beginner, because it is such a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, no matter what I do, every time I make blades, actually, in a recent video that I did for my channel where I made a couple of uh, Sloyd knives, those were made out of 52100, and I lost one in that video. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, I had to snap one in that video because it cracked in the quench. Um, so yeah, prepare for losing blades. Um, but the best thing you can do is your normalization cycles need to be on point. You need to be, again, uh, getting that 1500 degrees, uh, 1550 degrees Fahrenheit or uh, 820 degrees Celsius, and you need to hold it there. And it's really hard to do when you don't have temperature control, which is why I suggest that you learn how to control your temperature in the forge by, you know, reducing your air and your gas. Yeah. And you need to hold it there for around a minute at least. Mm-hmm. Right? You need to get it up to that temperature and hold it at that temperature. Even if that means putting it in and out of the forge, like bringing it out every now and again to stop it from getting over temperature. But you need to hold it there in order to give the chromium time to separate, to uh, to collect carbides. Um, if you don't give the chromium time to collect the carbides, then those carbides are basically just free roaming, and then they, when the carbon settles in the martin site it actually tears the material apart, mm. uh, which is why it cracks. Uh, and that's why I never have much luck with it because, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> holding it temperature in a forge is really hard to do. It is. Um, carbide reducing cycles actually happen at about 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, you know, like really up there close to welding temperature. Uh, you have to do multiple cycles of that in order to reduce carbide size. Uh, so if you're getting bad grain size in 52100, it's probably because your carbides are too big. Um, but yeah, so 52100 is one of those really painful steels to work with. It can make a fantastic knife. Mm. Like, I love 52100 for knives. And it's one of the main reasons why I want a heat treat kiln, is for heat treating that stuff. Because the yep. rest of the stuff we've talked about, you can get a pretty repeatable and decent result out of those from a forge. I've made... ABS Journeyman Smith capable, uh, practical test capable knives using my setup. Yeah. But when it comes to 52100, uh, my, my hands are up in the air. I'm, <laughs> I'm done. Um, but yeah, prepare to lose blades and you be didn't, you focused. You didn't talk about the quench procedure. Ah, quench procedure. Yes, of course. Well, you're obviously getting it up to temperature, holding it at the temperature for at least a minute, if not a little bit more. Uh, actually, I think the heat treating uh, diagrams recommend like five minutes or fifteen minutes of temperature. I can't remember which one I it think is. It was five. Yeah, um, but I don't tell you five because five minutes feels like forever when you're trying to hold a blade at temperature in a forge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to quench into preheated to around fifty degrees, sixty degrees Celsius, medium speed quench oil. Uh, and again, medium speed for a at-home forge canola oil, rice bran oil, peanut oil, those oils are all medium speed. Do not quench it in a fast speed oil. If you have Horton's K or Horton's Q, don't speed, don't quench it in that, because you'll crack it. Uh, I mean, you might get lucky, but <laughs> edge your bets. Um, and yeah, go straight out of that into your oven. Don't try and adjust anything. Don't try and straighten it after the quench, like some people do mm-hmm. with other steels. Uh, and be prepared for decarburization. It is something that I have only suffered with 5100 is that I always end up with a pretty decent layer of decarb. And that's mainly because you have to hold it at temperature. Yeah. 
So when you're making 5200 knives, when you go to quench them, make sure they're a little thicker than you would normally leave your other blades. Yeah. Right? Like, where you'd normally grind to, like, a millimeter thickness at the edge, go mil and a half, two mil thickness at the edge. And do a lot of post-heat treat grinding, because you're going to have a lot of decarb, or not a lot of decarb, but more decarb than you used to. Would you recommend and, the Satanite trick? Or the refractory um, trick? I haven't tried it. The thing about the Satanite coating is that it also increases the surface area of the material, which speeds up the quench a little bit, mm. which is dangerous. So I... I I can't recommend it because I haven't tried it, but it's something I might actually have to do uh, a video on or, or try it out just myself mm. uh, in in the near future. That's a good question. I like that. Um, in industry and in like uh, heat treating um, with kilns, they normally recommend using stainless steel foil wrap, the tool wrap, yep. um, and a little bit of uh, you know like a, a little bit of deoxidizer in there, like a piece of paper or something like that, to burn up whatever oxygen's left in the packet. Uh, and that may, that way you don't get oxidization, which means you don't get decarburization. How about the uh, paint-on anti-scale compound? That would work. That would be a really good option if you have access to that. Um, I know that Niels Vandenberg did some pretty cool work with an airbrush <laughs> on the dagger. And the color of that stuff, man. That was it awesome. It looked wicked. I, like I kind of want to make a blade line. that's... I want to make a blade that, that that's that color. Yeah. <laughs> it looks awesome. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'd love to get my hands on some anti-scaling compound to play with that. A play with I haven't actually played with anti-scaling compound before because it's expensive. Mm, it is very expensive. It's for that but knife yeah, that, would, that you absolutely need to get perfect. That would be a good option, yeah. Uh, especially on a patterned blade, like a, a patent welded blade, where decarburization would affect the way that the etch works. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely important. But um, yeah, I, I think that uh, both. That and maybe the Satanite technique may actually help with uh, the 52100. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I look forward uh, to that video. Final note uh, for heat treating. If you're going for hormones, and I got asked about this recently, um, about making a hormone in 5160, there is a rule in hormones in that uh, alloys equal death for hormones. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the more, the, the less alloying content you have as far as metallurgical, uh, alloys rather than like steel and carbon, uh, any other alloy on top of that makes the hormone harder to make. So, uh, I had a lot of people who were surprised when I made 1084 with hormone. It's a pretty simple steel. Is, yeah. Well, it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of manganese in it and it's got a little bit of molybdenum in it and stuff like that. It's actually not as low a alloy steel as something like W1, W2, 1095. Right. Uh, and so, but you don't get the activity out of 1084 that you do out of those other steels. No. Because all the activity dies. You get the, you get the wavy line, but you don't get any of the ghosty bits the coming ashy. off it. Yeah, the ashy, yeah. But, um, when it comes to 5160 and the chromium steels, you forget about it. Don't even try. Yeah. Like, I've known of a couple of bladesmiths who have made Hamon on 52100, and no one knows how they did it. <laughs> like, it, it is incredibly oh, difficult. So, quench. You, no, don't <laughs> order quench please, Jesus. But, um, you know, if you're going to go for Hamon, go for a simple steel like W1, W2, 1095. Uh, 1084 does it. 1060, 1075. A lot of the 10X steels um, will do it. Um, but yeah, steer, steer clear of your, your 51s, your 41s, your, you know, all those, uh, chromium steels. 
Um, because, yeah, otherwise you, you're just going to have a bad time. No putting Hamones in your hammers. Well, I mean, you could try. The 4140 Hamone, right down yeah. the middle of your hammer. <laughs> I'd, I, I would actually pay to see someone who managed to make a Hamone on a hammer. A, a Hamone and a hammer face would be pretty cool. It wouldn't last long, but... <laughs> well, no, but yeah. the big thing for me is, like, the, the amount of steel in a hammer. Mm. It'd be very difficult to get a controlled Hamone. Like, you can make a hardening line on a hammer pretty easy. You just mm. quench the face. Yeah. But getting a Hamone with ashy... Mm. Like, even if you made the hammer out of W2 or something like that. New Forgecast challenge. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'll pass on that one, mate. I'm passing. (laughs) Yeah, speaking of... The closest you'll see me get that way is, like, Forge welding a face onto a piece of wrought iron or something. That's it. (laughs) So, speaking of the Forgecast challenge, guys, uh, don't forget that this month, the month of January 21, is um, to make a friction folder. You got two weeks left. It doesn't necessarily have to be a friction folding knife. Mm. Could be a comb, bottle opener. Mm. Kind of like the idea of a friction folding. <laughs> 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 I kind of like the idea of a friction folding bottle opener. It's kind yeah, of a cool idea. Yeah. Although one of the friction folders I own actually has a bottle opener as the tang. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So it's useful whichever way it is, open or closed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's useful when it's closed and open. Yeah, it's yeah. there you go. All right, uh, so big thank you again for all of the emails that get sent in. I know we can't couldn't get through them all today, but we, we really appreciate that you guys send in so much love. Um, but if you would like to add to our pile of emails, um, feel free to do so by sending a question to ask.forgecast at gmail.com. And if you yeah, are, don't don't be afraid to send them in just because we've got a lot right now. We want more emails. Yeah, that's right. Give us more emails. We may do it. <laughs> we have in the past done email specials, and we will again. So, I'm honestly convinced that we should do that for our uh, for our hundredth or for our two year. I'm I'm marinating an idea for that episode. Yeah, we're we're, we're coming up with an idea. It's going to be fun. It, Whatever it, it is. is. Whatever it is. <laughs> but uh, where where can they find you, Sam, if they're looking for you? Well, I mean, they can find me in the kitchen sink. I am back. You know, like, I, I, I took a break, but uh, I'm, I'm back in the kitchen sink now. Uh, <laughs> but I'm also on YouTube, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Patreon, Etsy, Redbubble, a whole bunch of other places. Where can they find you? I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, and YouTube, and Etsy, and Redbubble, and Patreon, and Twitch. Yes. Hope you guys are all doing really, really well, and I hope that you got a lot of juicy, juicy tidbits of information from this episode. And I'd like to do a little quick test of our listeners right now. Anyone who's listening to this part of the show, right at the very end, comment, listened, on the post on Instagram, Mm. to let us know that you listened all the way through to the end. Yes, that's, that's a good one. I like that. I'm interested, I'm just interested to see how many people are actually listening through right to the end. Now, yes, comment, comment, listen, and confuse everybody else that doesn't. That's it, everyone's going to be, what the hell's going on? <laughs> Bunch of bots in this chat. <laughs> Alright guys, have a good one. See you later.
Vision. 